we're going to continue in our series that we started two weeks ago called The Pursuit. And we've been talking about how God pursues us. And the Bible does tell us that, that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And the truth is, we don't draw near to God first. He, he first comes after us. He pursued you long before you were even thinking about him. You were in some bar room or over at Mama's house at Christmas. You weren't thinking about God. And he came and he began to pursue you. And your response was then to pursue him. And as we pursued God and he pursues us, there's a drawing near that happens. And it's, it's a relationship that we have. And it's not, it's not just head knowledge and intellectual understanding of God, but it then becomes an experience with God. We experience the things of God and we have moments along the way. I've been saved for about 31 and a half years, 32 years. And in that time, I can, I can look back at different landmark moments. They weren't huge moments, but they were moments nonetheless, and they all add up to this relationship with God. We've been through stuff together, right? God was there when, and I know that's the story that many of you could tell as well, but that's that's the relationship God is seeking. From the very beginning, his heart has always been to be with his people, and so in this series, we, we're, we're walking through the tabernacle in the wilderness, which is found in the book of Exodus. And we, just to give a quick highlight, we, we see that the, the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, ended up in Egypt and they multiplied and the Egyptian Pharaoh, the king there, he was threatened by it. So he put them in captivity. They were slaves for many, many, many years in Egypt. And they cried out to God, a little, little help here, when we're in bondage, if we cry out to God, and it says in the Bible, he will hear your prayer. He will hear you in your suffering. And so he heard them, and he he sent Moses, a uh, great backstory with him as well, but that he sent Moses uh, from the mountain of God. He said, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He did this, and through a long chain of events, if, you, if you're older than 40, you've probably seen the Charleston Heston movie about Moses. And, um, and anybody under 40, you've seen the movie? Help me out here. Just Justin, a few people. Okay, all right, all right. Y'all are close to 40, though. Anybody under 30, you've seen the movie. Okay, all right. One verse, two, two. Yes, Cammy. good. <laughs> so you've got, you've got a theological understanding already, look, from the book, from the movie Moses. Was it, was it, what was the movie even called? Ten Commandments? Yeah, okay. Um, so great backstory with Moses, but he did that through a chain of events and some plagues. Pharaoh finally relented, let the people of Israel go. Moses led them out of the wild, out of the captivity into the wilderness, but he, he ultimately took them to the mountain of God where God gave them the Ten Commandments and many, many other laws. But in this, God spoke to Moses and he said, go and have the people build this tent, this tabernacle out in the middle of the desert, and he said, when, when it's complete, I'm going to dwell there. Now, God's everywhere, right? God is what the Bible would say, omnipresent. He's um, everywhere. He holds everything together. So this wasn't like God was like, I'm going to dwell right there only. But for the sake of interaction with the children of Israel, he's like, I'm going to dwell there. It's kind of like he, he tells us, you know, God started this idea of the church, and he tells us to assemble together, and then he would be in our midst it's not that he wasn't with you on the job or in the classroom or at the house. It wasn't that he's not holding everything together in the universe right now. But for the sake of interaction with us, he wants us to gather together as his people worship him. And he says, I'll inhabit it the praise of the people. I'll show up in their midst. That's why it's hard to have an ongoing, healthy relationship with God 
at home without this. You can do it. It is doable, but it's not like this. This is special because it was God's idea for him to come and be with his people. So same thing for the children of Israel out in the wilderness. And so Moses came down off the mountain and he told them what God said. And in Exodus chapter 25, it kind of gives the gist of the, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness and why. So in verse eight, it says, and let them make me, God speaking, a sanctuary, a holy place. I said last week, this building, this room is not holy until we're here and God's here. Otherwise, it's just sheetrock and carpet and some, some, some ceiling tiles. But when we come and God comes, it, it makes this a sacred place. He said, make me a sanctuary, a sacred place that I may dwell in their midst. And exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So the tabernacle was a sacred space where God's presence came to be with his people. But it was also a sign of things to come. And we're walking through that as well. In the last few weeks, we've kind of, we've kind of detailed out some of the things that you see Jesus in the tabernacle, things to come. He was saying, there's the pattern. This is where we'll work together and I'll be with you. You'll be with me. I can speak to you through Moses and, but it's bigger. It's not just about this tent in the middle of the desert. It's symbolic of something that is to come, and that is Jesus. And we are privileged to be able to be in Christ. We're privileged to be able to have a relationship with Christ. Uh, they, they call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God's with us today. We get to we have a personal relationship with him. Um, we're going to put up a pic to kind of help visualize this, but uh, last week we mentioned, put the pic of the whole thing, the the... No, back, is there no pick before that? Oh, well, that's no good. Yeah, right there. Okay, so so this is in the middle of the desert, and the mountain of God is to the west. Um, the tent, just some of you will care about this. The tent, this is should be flipped, but it's the gate is facing east, and so the back of the tent is facing west, and you got north and south. And then the 2.5 plus million Israelites would have been camped all around, some on each side. And the focus of, this is important, the focus of their daily life was this tent in the middle where there was a cloud of smoke that was God's presence. God's presence was in the midst of the tent. I don't know. Sometimes I, 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 I'm so thankful for where we are. I don't want to go back. But if, if, if we were there, every morning we wake up, we walk outside, oh, we'd stretch with our coffee and we look and there would be this cloud, which is the presence of God. Now, the thing is, he is in, in that same way. He's just not a cloud. He is in our house. He is there at your table waiting for you. He is, he is there at the job waiting for you, but we don't see him. And so, well, sometimes we ignore him, but they couldn't ignore God. He was in the midst of their, uh, their camp. So, uh, if you can see it on the far left, which would be again, the east was the gate or the entrance into the courtyard. It's called the outer court. And that's where the linen fence that went around. And the uh, first thing you would have seen when you walked through the gate would have been what was called a bronze altar. It's just a big square, about four and a half, five foot wide by, by four and a half, five foot wide. And they kept it lit all the time. 
and they would burn sacrifices there. And then as you walked a little closer to the tent, you would have a, a bronze laver that was a big bowl of water, and they had to keep it fresh all the time. That's where the priests would wash their hands and feet, especially before they would go into the tent. They had to wash their hands and feet. Well, we mentioned last week that the gate represented access to God, and it does symbolize Jesus, right? Jesus is the only way to God. He said that. There's no other way to the Father except through me. That's what he said. And so there's a lot of things out there. The world will tell you there's a dozen ways to God or more. But according to Jesus, he's the only way. And that's what we believe as, as Christians. And so that was the gate access. The bronze altar where they burnt the sacrifices represents Jesus' sacrifice on a cross. That's where we come to get saved. It's for where we get justified. And so we, we unpacked that a little bit last week. And then the, the washing of the water and the labor represented the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. And that represents sanctification. So we're saved. And then as we're walking out our salvation, the Holy Spirit is convicting us and steering us. Uh, someone last week mentioned this. It's like we're on the road. We got saved. We're on the road. There's a ditch on each side, and the Holy Spirit's working to keep us out of the ditch. Come on. You know we get in the ditch, right? I think the Holy Spirit has this big tow truck, and he just pulls us on back onto the road and gets us going again. But that is the walking out of salvation. It's a lifelong process called sanctification. Now we're at the tent. Today we're at the tent, and... Um, I, I want to mention that the outer court focuses on removing the barrier of sin from our lives. And so the, the, the whole idea of the cross, the whole idea of the sanctification work of the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the brazen altar, the, the labor, it's all about getting our condition of sin resolved as well as our conduct resolved. It's all about sin. It's all about dealing with our sin and ongoing dealing with our sin. And that's everybody. I do believe, though, overall, in a broad stroke of the brush, that Christians tend to stay in the outer court. We stay in the outer court. Either we don't realize there's more that we can go on in, or we're so consumed with the outer court because we're so consumed with our sin. And so we're sin conscious versus Jesus conscious. Instead of realizing, oh, he paid a debt for my sins, I'm free. Oh my goodness, I messed up, but I'm back on the road. I'm free and God is so good. Instead of focusing on the goodness of God, we focus on our sin. Oh, messed up again. I probably should have to go back to the cross. No, no cross. Pastor said I don't have to go to the cross, but I feel like I need to go to the cross. And we are in this little holding pattern out in the outer court. But today, God wants you to know he's inviting you into the tent. The first room, there's two rooms in the tent. The first room is called the holy place. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the next room, which is the holy of holies. But today we're in the holy place. We've, we've, the curtain's pulled back, and, and we walk in to the holy place. I believe the holy place will teach us how to go from being an acquaintance with Jesus to having fellowship with him, to having a true life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's case in point. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I talk to people all the time, and when I say things about hearing the voice of God or we read that scripture, people give me a blank stare like, I've never heard the voice of God. And that doesn't make you a second-class Christian. However, that does tell me that you're ready for your next step. You're ready for more. You're ready to go in the tent 
and have fellowship with God, with Jesus. Not just doing good to stay out of hell, circling the sin pattern, right? But having a fellowship, a relationship with Jesus. Okay, so all the people who lived around in the, all, the, all the tents, all the people could come in the outer court, but only the priests could go into the tent. Only the priests could go in the tent. And in the Old Testament, the priests were the sons of Aaron, which was Moses' brother. They were from the tribe of Levi. They were called Levites, and they were responsible for a whole lot of things. Um, they had to tear down the tent when God said it's time to move, and they had to tear it down and follow God, and then they would have to set it up. Shout out to Ocean Springs, our Ocean Springs location. Tear down, set up. Last week, they were all set up and ready to go. Saturday evening... Saturday afternoon, the city called and said, we need y'all to tear down because we've got a wrestling uh, group that's going to be coming in and doing uh, wrestling in the Civic Center on Saturday night. They had forgot to tell them. So Pastor Stephen had to rally a whole bunch of guys to go down, tear down. And then, of course, Sunday morning, set back up. You can imagine, this is what the, the, the Levites, they, the priests were responsible for. It's like, oh, God's moving. Pick everything up, and they would follow God, set up in the next location. They were also responsible for the music and the worship. There was constant music and worship going on, and so you know we have a worship team. Morgan leads a great team here. All many many of y'all are on the team here. Musician, they, they were called the Levites, and they would have been worshiping all the time, blowing their trumpets and their tambourines, and having a good old time. They were also responsible for guarding the gate, making sure that only people who had they were pure, could come in, you know, and so you had to do this process to get in the gate. The, the guards would do that. They also offered the sacrifices um, in the outer court, burnt the animals that were given for sin offerings and the various types of animals. The book of Leviticus, even, uh, it's, it, there's so many details, so many details. And when you're reading through it, sometimes you're like, okay, okay, okay. But if you were a priest back in the day, you would have been paying attention to every detail because that was your job. That's what you did, all right? So then the final thing that we see that they're responsible for is ministering to God, ministering to God in the actual tent, in the holy place. So here we are, we're at the curtain. We're walking in, right? Everybody walking in with me? Well, wait a minute, pastor. You're the only one that gets to go in, right? You're the priest. Wrong, wrong. But that is what people think. People think that we're the people, guy on stage with the microphone is the priest. But let me read what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. It says, but you, come on, somebody say me. You're in the Bible. But you are a chosen, by God, race, a royal priesthood. You are a, I think we need to say it, say, I am a royal priest. Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, uh-uh, hold up now. <laughs> yes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, or in other words, a minister of the sacred. That's what the priesthood is. You're a minister of the sacred. You are. And then he goes on, a holy nation, God's kingdom in you. We are together collectively with all our other brothers and sisters. A holy nation unto God. Holy, we'll come back to holy. But holy, well, wait a minute, Pastor, but you don't know. I was up at Toots last night. That's two weeks in a row I've talked about Toots. Something's up. Somebody's at Toots. Look at me. No, I have no idea. 
No, pastor, you don't understand what I did this week or last week or this in my lifetime. No, God made you holy. <laughs> it's not what you did. It's what God did for you that made you holy. And so a holy nation, a people, a people for his own possession. We are the family of God. We belong to God. We belong to Christ. Jesus said, it, it's great honor for me to be, this is my people. God gave them to me. We belong to Christ for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, Jesus, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Jesus says, okay, what I've done on the cross, the resurrection, no longer as a few guys from Levi, the Levites, the priests. Now, if you're saved, you're a priest. Okay, you ready? All the priests now, let's pull back the curtain. Let's go in. We're, we're trying to get in. We're walking into the holy place. We're in the tent now. We're in the tabernacle. And the first thing you would have seen in there, look at, the, you would have seen this table on the right with some bread on it. And, and then you would have seen this incense altar ahead of you. And then on the left, there would have been this, this golden lampstand. It's a menorah that would have been on the left. We'll start there. We'll start there. The golden lampstand. It was the only light source in the room. And keep in mind, one end of the room was a beautiful tapestry. And then you had the gate, the, the curtain that you came through, which was fine linen with tapestry on it, designs all over it. There were cherubim woven in. It would have been very picturesque and colorful. Up top, you would have seen a, a dark uh, covering that would have been over the top, very symbolic in its meaning as well. But on the left and right, behind these elements in in behind the lamp and behind the table, there would have been walls that were literally covered with gold and polished. And so here you have the flickering of the lamp. You're standing in the middle of the room as the priest ministering to God. And you look to the left and it's glistening off the gold. You look to the right, it's glistening off the gold. You might even see your reflection looking back at yourself, standing in the midst of the holy place. As a minister, right? We're priests as a minister of the things of God, of the sacred. So we look to the left and there's this lampstand. This lampstand, the golden lampstand um, had seven branches, according to God's design in the book of Exodus, chapter 25. It had seven branches, and at the top of each branch was a, a, a lamp on each branch. And the priests were responsible. We're responsible. The priest would have been responsible to keep the lamps filled with oil and lit 24-7. So you, it was a maintenance thing. There was, there, was, there was a responsibility of the priests. They were to go in and minister to God by keeping oil in the lamps, making sure that the wicks were trimmed and that the lamps were burning properly. It was a responsibility of the priests in Leviticus chapter 24, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly or all the time. So the light of the lampstand for us today represents Jesus. The light of the lampstand represents Jesus. John 8, Jesus said, in verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we're priests, a minister of the sacred. We're in the holy place, ministering to God by keeping all in the lamp that represents Jesus. We 
have a part to play in Jesus being the light of the world, being the light to all mankind. We have a part to play. We are champions, and I say that sometimes. We're here, Lord, to, to, to make you famous, to champion your name. I say that, and sometimes I know people are like, what does that even mean? Well, here's what it means. We're the ones who help people out there in the darkness know who's in here, in the light. We're in the light, and there are people in darkness And Jesus is their hope. I've said for many years, I believe the number one disease in the world, by far, above every other disease, and I know we have a diseaseologist in the room, so she's going to say, but you're going to agree. The greatest disease in the world is not found in a lab. The greatest disease in the world is hopelessness. And we have hope for the hopeless, and it is Jesus He is hope for the hopeless. He is the righteous one that takes away our sins. He is the one who is good, that meets us where we are. He is the light of the world, and he shines in the darkness. That's where we used to live, in utter darkness, in our sin, in our pain, in in all things evil. And Jesus came, and he scooped us up. He brought us into the light. And now we live in the light of Jesus, the lampstand represents Jesus. In John 1, 4, Jesus said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's no denying that, I mean, you watch the news, read the news for five minutes, you see the world is full of darkness. It's not something new to our generation, by the way. It's been like that since the very beginning. The evil one has been working to undermine the plans of God since the beginning, right? Go back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3. All of a sudden, you say, oh, hold on, this is not new. And there have been some very evil people. If you're a history major, you know, very evil people that have lived and killed millions and millions, billions of people have been murdered over the generations before us. Oh, it is bad now also, just like it has been all along. Very dark the, 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 I know this sounds crazy and morbid, and I'm not normally this way, but if you just take that look at the world, we live in a very evil world. Mankind is very evil. I could understand why people, why people outside of Christ would buy into things like we need to just get rid of the people. Uh, there's, a, there's an idea that's been around forever, since the beginning, that, that an enemy has propagated this out there over and over again, that if we got rid of the people, the world would be a much better place. If we could reduce the population down to just a handful of people, the world would be thankful. And it's true from that perspective, because the world is evil. It's covered in darkness. By God's allowing, and he has chosen to allow the enemy for a season to have free reign. And that's what he says in the Bible. I don't understand that, but God has a plan. But because he's allowed darkness to exist for a season, we're, we're experiencing great darkness, great pain, great evil. Death should never have been. It wasn't part of God's plan. I think that at every funeral I go to, this shouldn't have happened. It wasn't part of God's plan. Nonetheless, sin in the world, evil in the world, brings death, brings heartache, brings pain. Yet we see Jesus show up 2,000 years ago as the light of the world. Light 
dispels darkness. When, 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 when Millie walked in this morning or Kelly, whoever showed up first, this room was dark. And when the light switch flipped on, the lights came on, the darkness was dispelled, right? That's, that's right, no brainer. We understand that. But the same exact thing happens with Jesus. He is the light of the world. And we are instruments of that light. We carry Christ in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We go out into the darkness and we carry the light into the darkness. People have come to me over the years, Pastor Mike, would you pray? I need to get a new job. I need to get a new job. All the people around me at my job, they're so evil. I just, you know what? I really would love to get a job where it's just a bunch of Christians. Where I go, oh, where I could walk in and enjoy myself. And okay, I'll pray for you to do that. But I'll just be honest with you. You got to ask the question, did God put you, a light bulb, in a dark room for a purpose? Because your light's not going to shine. Your light doesn't shine in this room too much because there's light bulbs all around you. It's in the dark places. And some, for some of you, it's in the classroom. Um, not if you're homeschooled. It's not there. But, um, but sometimes in the classroom, sometimes on the job, sometimes in the family, your family, your other family, the rest of your family, sometimes they, they, they're not in the light and you're the light bulb and you get a lot of finger wagging. You don't you come preaching that Bible around me. You take your Jesus somewhere else because they're darkness and they don't want your blinding light. but we have a responsibility to carry the light of Jesus into the darkness. So the lampstand represents and reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world that illuminates our path and dispels darkness before us. Interestingly, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the word. And it also says the word is a lamp unto my feet. He is also our wisdom. He gives us understanding to be able to navigate uh, the, the darkness of the world. So the light represents Jesus. The lampstand represents Jesus. The oil in the lamps is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truth of God. He guides us into the wisdom of God. He empowers us to do the work of God, and he reveals to us the word of God. The Holy Spirit comforts us with the, comforts us with the peace of God, um, and he convicts us of our sins. He produces the fruit of the Spirit within us, and he helps us to know the person of Jesus. You're a priest ministering in the sacred place, the holy place, and you're standing in the midst of a lampstand. There it is to your left, and it represents Jesus, and you're maintaining the oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. You're maintaining this relationship with Jesus through your relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here. Jesus told us that he was going to be going away, told his disciples, he said, I'm going away. We read this and we say, okay, Jesus is not on earth. He, he said, I'm going away. The Bible also tells us he's at the right hand of the Father. But in John 14, 16, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And this is what the book of Acts is all about. The beginning of the book of Acts to be with you forever, even the Spirit, capital S, Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, priests, holy priesthood, but you know him, for he dwells with you and we will be in you. So the moment we are saved and we're justified before God, God's Spirit, who drew us to this place of understanding, the cross, regenerates us, seals us, 
for our day of salvation. Gives us the guarantee that we're going to be able to stand before Jesus one day. That's what the cross represents. And then as we walk out our salvation, right, in sanctification, the Holy Spirit, he guides us. He, that's why I say I think he has this big tow truck. He's just busy. Oh, no, come on out of the ditch. Come on. Get out of the ditch again. Get back on the road. Get your eyes back on Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is with us, and he is in us every day to the end of the age. Till we cross the finish line, till we stand before Jesus, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to stand with us for a moment and say, there you go, Jesus. I got him here. And then we get to, to see him face to face. But the Holy Spirit, big part, the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Interestingly, the priests, we the priests, are responsible for our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We keep oil in the lamp. We, we maintain this relationship with the Holy Spirit. And then he, all these things that we just read, he shows us the ways of Jesus. He convicts us of our sin. He brings us into peace, the peace of God. He's the one that produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. If you've never read Galatians 5, one of the, my favorite chapters in the Bible, but the Spirit of God, as we walk with the Spirit, he convicts us of sin, he keeps us out of the ditch, and then he produces the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God in our lives. He helps us to love people. I just don't know if I can love people. Well, you probably can't, but the Holy Spirit in you can. So maintain the oil and the love of God will flow through you. The peace of God will flow through you. The joy of the Lord will flow through you. The long suffering, the goodness, the gentleness, it'll flow through you because that's the outflow of maintaining a relationship with the Holy Spirit. As priests of God, with access to God. We have access to God in his sacred places. We have a responsibility to maintain a relationship with the Holy Spirit. This is our ministry as priests. This is our ministry. So, so you're standing in the circle in the room, gold on the left, gold on the right, glistening light, lampstand on the left, and you look back to the right, and there's a table with some bread on it. It looks kind of like this, kind of like this, but actually... We, we put this up. We knew we were going to be lacking here, but there was actually some other things on this table. We'll get to those in a minute. But we see in Exodus 25, God gave instruction for this table. And in the Bible, it's called a table of showbread, like S-H-E-W, bread, showbread. Um, and it represents communion with God. It represents fellowship with God. It represents the hospitality of God. We are invited as ministers of the sacred, right? Ministers to God, priests, we're invited to God's table. How many of you have read Psalm 23 before where it says he prepares a table for who? For me. In the very presence of my enemies, out in the darkness, God's setting up a banquet table for me. Don't you know he's sitting at that table also? He's saying, come sit at my table. It's not my table. It's his table. And I'm invited to his table. You're invited to his table to fellowship with God, to commune with God. God wants face-to-face. He wants interaction. He wants to love you and to show you his love and to give you instruction and wisdom and peace and all the things that God is sure to give. So on the table um, would have been the bread. There were 12 loaves of unleavened bread on the table representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so they're 
remember that that priest are going in, they got tents all around them. There were 12 tribes or 12 sons of Jacob that would have been camped around about. So each of those pieces of bread represented a different tribe. God's covenant was being represented by the bread there. His covenant with the people of Israel was represented by that bread. On that table also would have been um, probably some other utensils, maybe a couple of plates um, for eating the bread, as well as uh, a flask of what Numbers 28 calls strong wine. And then some glasses to drink it with. Um, the bread, I'm, I'm, I'm fixing to make a jump here, and you're going to understand why I'm, I'm belaboring this. The bread represented the covenant of God. It represents the broken body of Jesus Christ that he allowed for us to be his people, for us to be healed in our soul, in our body. He took beating in his body. That bread represents that. The wine that was on the table was called the drink offering, and they, they had a, a ritual of pouring out the drink offering to God. But also at the end of the week, on the Sabbath, they would refresh this table. They would eat the bread. The priest, the priest, we the priest, they would eat the bread and they would drink the wine because it represented God's covenant and it represented God's freedom, that they were God's people. It ratified the covenant. In ancient Near East practices, um, coming to a table with your fellow nations or even your enemy, kind of like we would cut a peace treaty today as a nation, but coming to the table and breaking bread together and ratifying it with wine would have been very significant. It would have been a sign of covenant making. And then you would have probably done this annually with that neighbor to ratify, to say, hey, we're reminding each other we're in covenant together. Covenant meant that if we're in covenant together, let's just say we're three nations, and you know I'm nation A, B, and C, and we came together, we're neighbors, and we're but we're nations, we're leaders of people, of clans, and we say let's make a covenant together. That means if somebody comes against you, they're coming against us. If somebody comes against you or me, they're coming against us. We rally together. We fight for each other. If you're in need, if something happens, a famine in your land, you come to me. I'm going to help feed you. If something happens to me, you're going to help me. We're going to be in covenant together. And God established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with the children of Israel, that he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people. Covenant meant he was going to protect them, come through for them, that they he would have their back. It's why, if you read about David and Goliath in the Old Testament, I mean, you all know the David and Goliath story, right? Most of you if, you, if you don't, it's a great story to read. But David went out to fight this giant that everybody else was scared of. And this is what he said. You come to me with a sling and the sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. He was speaking to covenant. As a matter of fact, to prove what I'm saying is, he said to the giant, you uncircumcised Philistine. David was circumcised. The people of God were circumcised because that was a sign of the covenant they had with God. David wasn't this brave little boy with a sling, like, I know knocked out a bunch of people. I'll take you out too, big boy. He was confident in the God who had his back. Jesus ratified a covenant with us when he died on the cross and he spilt his blood and his body was broken. 
He ratified a covenant with us and he says, I've got your back. You're going to live forever. I've proved, I've risen from the grave so you could rise from the grave. Death has no sting. Death is nothing anymore. You're not, this life is not everything. You're going to live eternally. And by the way, you're going to get a new body. You're going to be healed. You're going to be whole. There's not going to be any more tears and no more crying and no more sin. Don't worry. I got your back. And the enemy's like, no, worry. Please worry. Please worry. No, you don't understand. You need to worry because you're bad. You're bad. He doesn't love you. The enemy's just always lying in our ear. And Jesus is not looking at you and saying you're bad and I don't love you. He's looking at the price he paid on the cross. The Father looks through the blood when he sees you. And the covenant that is made with us through the broken body and the blood that was poured out. The covenant establish and renews the promise of God. The bread represents God's provision to his people and the covenant he has with Israel. I mentioned that it was unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is bread made without yeast. And in the Bible, yeast represents sin. And so normal bread that, you know, rises, has yeast in it. And there's nothing wrong with eating normal bread, by the way. It's just, but symbolically for a lesson to us, God tells us to, you know, in this case here, he's telling the children of Israel, I want unleavened bread only because leaven is symbolic of sin. And so he's like, I want you to commune with me, but I can't commune with you through sin. And that's why he sent the Holy Spirit, by the way, because he knew we would sin. We have the propensity to sin. Even though our sin nature has been broken by the cross, we're surrounded by 6,000 years of compounded sin all around us every day, tempting us. And we do end up in the ditch sometimes. And God brings us back out by his Holy Spirit through repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. James tells us, wash your hands, O ye sinners. In other words, come to God, get clean again. Live in a constant state as priests of the Most High. Wash your hands, wash your feet, those things that are tainted by the world and come into the presence of God clean so that you can have communion at the Lord's table. 